Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? Core Security by Fortra helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automation. Take your engagements further by pairing with our red teaming tools from Cobalt Strike and Outflank. Learn more at www.securityweekly.com forward slash core security. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. We would like to invite our listeners to be part of the 2023 SC Awards. Our prestigious and competitive SC Awards program recognizes outstanding innovations, organizations, and leaders that are advancing the practice of information security. This year, there are awards in 36 categories up for grabs, including the Best IT Security-Related Training Program, Innovator of the Year, Best Sassy Solution, and more. We'd love to see your company in the spotlight. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash SC Awards to submit your entries by March 13th. That's coming um, up soon. Adrian, Adrian, I would like to formally submit uh, you for uh, Podcast Host of the Year. I wonder if there's a category for that. We're going to have to. A hundred percent. I will nominate you and I will ask for everyone in the audience to go to your favorite Reddit uh, channel, go to your favorite Slack channel, and let's make a campaign for Adrian for uh, cybersecurity podcaster of the year, because that's how awesome he is. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're that. welcome, my friend. It, there, there are podcast awards. I actually have an email in my inbox. I just started following a newsletter that's all about podcasting, podcast technology, podcast software, trends in podcasting and all that. Uh, yeah, the, they call them the Ambies. Let's get yeah, you nominated, guess, my guy. It's not just podcasting. It's the awards for excellence in audio. So I imagine like audiobooks, you know, the voice talent who read audiobooks and stuff like that would probably be part of that. But, uh, but yeah, I guess uh, like I'm a professional now, so I need to, <laughs> I need to start learning about the, this whole audio, uh, professional. You, uh, industry. you need, you need to work on your smooth, silky voice, Adrian. Yeah. And my accent and stuff. I, I would love to read audio books. I loved reading books to my kids at night. Like, uh, I've always wanted to do that. Right. So write some kids' books and, and do the audio. Anything longer than that, I, I don't know if I could sit down and read like a thousand-page book, the audio version. I'd figure out. I, I, do, I do not like them. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Adrienne. <laughs> All, right, <let's, laughs> All right, let's get to the real news. Come on. <laughs> All right. Um, not a ton of funding this week. I added one at the last minute here. We, we have three at $20 million. Cotto Security raised $20 million. Revelstoke raised $20 million. And Oligo Security raised $20 million, but not all at the same series. Ooh, some of them are A, some of them are B. Yeah. I'm not sure which one Cotto is. Is that a B? I'm not sure that it Kato's says. It's been around a while. That'll be at least a B. They've been around a hot minute. I'm nervous because I, I think some of these might be down rounds and, and they don't want people to make that connection necessarily. I think that's, that's oh, my yeah. theory. Here. That, that well, wouldn't the surprise me. One says care. bringing the company's total investment to 31.5. So it's definitely not their first go around. And yeah, they've yeah, been around for a while. Yeah, it could be could be seed. You could have seed that large. Cato uh, looks like they took a B in on March 9th. So Cato is a B, twenty million dollar B, led by Eurozeo. So we got two Bs and an A. Oligo Security has the the big round out of the out of the three here, and that's uh, an Israeli startup. And looks like library level security. Speaking of S bomb and knowing. What's going on with your libraries? It looks that like, is the uh, hotness right now. This whole this whole AppSec reinvention library level S bomb market. It's a super hot. Like I've I've probably I've probably seen at least six or seven pitches in, in the last three months on on that market alone, and all with a very 
very similar storyline that's not very differentiated and really do, is going to struggle to stand up against the rest of the AppSec, um, broader AppSec solution, that whole stack. Uh, they're going to have to figure out how they do it different or better than the traditional way. Well, uh, unlike some of these other categories that we've seen that are kind of theoretical, uh, this is something that attackers are absolutely going after. You know, they're putting backdoors in NPM uh, uh, packages and stuff like that. You know, they absolutely realize that there's an opportunity here to hack into an MSSP or into, uh, you know, some kind of supply chain component and uh, and get more bang for their buck. You know, why why, yeah. <laughs> why take a path that only gives you access to uh, one enterprise when you can get access to 100 or, or 1,000? Yeah, the thing so about, the thing about question... this is, though, it's, it's not, it's, it's actually not a, um, a new thing. Like, I remember when I was at Veracode 10 years ago, 10 years plus at this point, like we were talking about, um, I, I don't remember what we called it, certified pre-owned software, I think we called it. Basically, you know, you're using some kind of open source or embedding something into yours and that transitive trust occurs, right? That's not new. What's new is that people are actually actively trying to fix the problem because it's it's becoming a more common occurrence. That's all. Go ahead, Katie. I didn't mean to jump on you there. No, this is actually... Uh, uh, a good follow-up to that too. My, my question here in this space is, this isn't new, and this is a capability that certain vendors have or could have had years ago. So who's going to be the winners here? These new companies coming in and taking advantage of a good opportunity or the companies that have been around and been maybe a little negligent on this for a while, but who have the uh, the base for building this? Yeah, it's going to be a fun one to watch because the, as long as the technology disruption and innovation is there, they can disrupt the software composition analysis market. If they're not innovative enough, if they're not doing anything truly different and they just come across as a brand new way of doing SCA from a value proposition standpoint, they, they won't disrupt the market. And really, it's about understanding the fidelity of what's in your application, what goes into it and what comes out of it, right? Um, and that's not an easy thing to solve. It's um, it's about making sure that every ingredient in the recipe is is secure, as uh, as we were talking about at the top of the hour, or the top of the show. So Revelstoke, do you guys know what Revelstoke is? Nope. What they do? They are the first SOAR platform built on a unified data layer. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. The first SOAR platform built on a unified data layer. All right, well, good for them. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it is it, is uh, that true? Apparently, they're saying it acts like a Rosetta Stone. I think they're saying that uh, somehow they can avoid having to build parsers. Um, they've built some kind of technology that allows them to to integrate because SOAR is only as good as your integrations, right? You know, if this message, this alert pops up here, then go to this system here and and do X. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly that's the pain point of any SIM or SOAR. Uh, in fact, uh, I I remember <clears throat> Elastica. Uh, which was acquired by Bluecoat, which was acquired by Symantec, uh, had some IP on this, had, had some built some technology where they're trying to automate the process of building um, new integrations. You know, where they're they're trying to I, I don't know if they called it if they used ML or AI or anything like that, but they would try to automatically scan a website, you know, and and, and figure out the structure of it. You know, so not for a SOAR or a, or a SIM use case, they were a CASB. But, um, you know, because their they're CASBs would break anytime the website would break, if Salesforce made a change to where a button was or, you know, how, how something's organized from a UX perspective, uh, you know, these reverse proxy uh, CASBs would break. They're trying to build something to automate this. So mm. maybe they're maybe sure. they're trying to do something like that, but I, I think that's, that's a huge one there. Like I'm sure you guys encounter it all the or, or did uh, when you were at Jupiter One and at, at Exonius because another business that's built on all the integrations, and yeah. you've got to justify 
you know, the, the yeah. effort into building, you don't want to build an integration for one customer and only one customer ever uses it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have uh, a few different ideas around that topic of kind of this unified data lake connect connector kind of thing, but they're not, I mean, really what it is is they're, they're pulling together just like anybody else, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, integrations into your infrastructure, be it your security tooling or your infrastructure tooling to the APIs of those systems and pulling in the appropriate data and doing a correlation of, you know, a higher level analyzed result that you can't get from any individual tool in isolation. That's what the play is. It's the same play Jupyter One has, same play Axonius has, same play literally I can count dozens of vendors that are doing the same thing. They just all have a different different view on what the value prop that comes out of it is, right? In this particular case, it's a SOAR. In other particular case, it's incident response platform. You know, I've seen uh, identity-based um, cybersecurity via, done via this way. It's, it's the collection of lots of data. Now, they're going to run into the same scale problem as everybody else, and that is those integrations take time and energy to maintain and develop and, and build up. Um, but, you know, I think you've got a good point, Adrian, there, that that kind of unified middleware might make a really good company at this stage. Well, honestly, that's what Tynes is doing. You know, they basically have a no-code integration builder, you know, looking at, at how you connect APIs with Tynes. Like, you, you do need to know the API endpoints, uh, and you need to input some information about those endpoints. And... You know, you're telling it, okay, put this there, you know, uh, connect these two different things, but you don't have to write any code to do it. You know, you can, well, yeah. The harder part is the output format. So connecting up to the API and pulling the data is one right. thing, but what's the, what's the unified output format that is normalized so that it yeah, is a usable data yeah. format for anybody that wants to build on top of it? And I've got a few ideas on that too, but um, I don't want to get too deep into that. Go ahead, Katie. Were you trying to say something? No, I was just nodding along. Um, yeah, could, I, I think I was saying before. You know, one of the one of the issues I take with this wording is, you know, being the first, maybe the first in that space. Um, I think their concept is good. Do I think it's unique? I don't necessarily think that is the case, um, but I think it's necessary, absolutely necessary. But that's. Well, you, you're going to love you're going to love the Kato press release because they are the first cloud forensics and incident response platform. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's the Once first. Once again, is 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 you that true? First. You get a <laughs> Is that really true? I don't I don't know. I mean, I mean also, it's definitely what benefit what I I know that companies take some sort of solace in saying we're the first at this but but it, how far does that actually go because being the first only matters if you're also the best and best is always relative and one of the things that i learned when i was an analyst is never say first best unique um yeah. there's one more i can't remember right now because i'm on my soapbox but um companies who rely on that wording a, they need to back it up. And secondly, anytime you think of the first product released in any space, anywhere, like let's take cars, for example, what good would it do now for, for some company to say, we are the first car who has automatic brakes, had automatic brakes, uh, or anti-lock brakes, or whatever it is. Um, well, automatic brakes matter? are a thing now, Because every, every car now has anti-lock brakes. Every car that's made now has anti-lock brakes. So does does your market actually care when you say, "Hey, I was the first. Right. And also, if you were the first to build a product, you're the you're the first version. We all know that versions get improvements. That's why there are versions. That's why no company stays at v one for very long. So this first is really, I think it hurts companies more than it helps companies. And I I also think when they say only, they're just pinning a target on their backs because it's really only a matter of time until somebody else does exactly what they do, maybe in a different way, but the output is the same. And from a buyer's point of view, you know, if you're going here, does it matter if you start here and go here or if you start here and go here? Maybe, maybe not. 
And, and so saying first only or best, you know, that that's, I just don't know if it helps you in your marketing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it certainly has in the past in the auto industry, like, like uh, there's Audi's, you know, Quattro system was, was real big. You know, they won a bunch of world rally uh, championship races with it, you know, when nobody else was using all wheel drive and, you know, you'd see it badged on the car, you know, graphics on the side of the car, you know, and eventually like, like you don't see that anymore. You know, Audi's more of a luxury vehicle now, you know, less of a connection to, to, to rally stuff in, in their marketing, you know, but Subaru stuck with it, you know, Subaru's still, you know, very, um, you know, uh, leans heavily on their all all wheel drive. The fact that most of their cars have all wheel drive. So I don't know. I don't know if that transfers over to, to security, but like, if you do something really well, you know, if that's part of your DNA, you know, and to your point, Katie, I don't care if you've done it first. Like, like, do you do it really well? <laughs> I care more about whether you do it really well than if you're the first or the fifth or the 12th, right? Exactly. Exactly. Because they're going to be iterations of anything that your company does or that your product category does. So best, is it subjective? Yes. But if you have an argument for that and you can demonstrate that, okay, I'm, I'm all right with that. You need to be able to back it up and I'm okay with that. But first, it's kind of meaningless. You know, I, in my head, I think, hmm, maybe I don't want to try the first iteration of a product. Maybe I want them to work out the bugs a little bit. So is that helping or hurting? It depends on who your who your buyer is. Know your buyer, know your market. Yep, yep. All right, let's let's move on. Uh, it's too easy to to rant about uh, press releases. I don't want to spend too much time on that. Um, number seven, uh, Cyber Fortress. You know, this is pretty cool. This is a, a Polish team has come up with a, a board game. There's a PDF here at this link. Uh, I couldn't actually uh, link directly to. This one entry is just how the the first website is is set up, but there's there's a, a PDF of the slides. You know, it goes through how the game works and stuff like that. And you know, honestly, I hadn't gotten real excited about cybersecurity card deck games and stuff like that, mostly because I haven't had an opportunity to play them. But at Sony'll use Cyber Defense Matrix Conference. Uh, everybody got a copy of this game and, and it's a game that you can't buy. You can only get it directly from the vendor here, which is, uh, uh <laughs> having trouble with my camera, Cycraft, um, called Cybercans. And it's basically like Monopoly. Uh, but, uh, as a CISO, you're, you're buying different sec security technologies and, you know, you roll the dice, you move around the board. If you land on a, an attack, then you have to defend against that attack. And depending on what technologies you have, you roll for different things. And, and it's it's a lot of fun. And it translates pretty well, you know, because it obviously throws in that element of, of uh, chance and, and risk, you know, as, as, you know, with regards to how, how you're going to fare uh, during an attack. And... Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I think um, you can have some really good conversations around this. You know, the ta my table at the conference, uh, we were supposed to start doing birds of the feather type stuff, and, and we just ignored it because we we're having so much fun playing the game, and we we're just devoted to it. Everybody had their budget. It's got little money in it, just like Monopoly. Uh, it, it's uh, I was really impressed with it. They actually hired um, board game, experienced board game makers to make the game and gave them the, the parameters for making it. So this uh, the 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 one that I've linked to here uh, seems pretty cool and, and a bit more accessible too. You know, since this one you can't buy, but you know, you know, the, this one they they show you all the details of how it works. Um, I don't know how much, you know, how excited you guys are to talk about the the U.S. cybersecurity strategy. I'm I'm about two thirds of the way through the document, and for me, it's mostly highlighting stuff that's already going on. But I link to a bunch of different articles here, you know, different people's takes. You know, people read it and took different things from it depending on their backgrounds. But I don't have a lot to say about it at this point, except it's it's a good update, 
and I, I think uh, there's some really good stuff going on, you know, especially between CISA and, and MITRE. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of good collaboration between public and private industry. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Adrian. I struggled to uh, stay awake in that, uh, in that tome of reading. It's just too dense, too long, too govy. It's just not my jam. There's a lot of back padding, you know, like, like self-congratulation mm-hmm. in it. And there's, uh, they make sure to tell you Russia's bad and China's bad and DP, DPRK is bad. Um, <laughs> like there, you can tell it's written by committee, right? Like mm-hmm. somebody said, Hey, mm-hmm. it, here, here's a blurb of text that has to go in there. And they just copied and pasted it right in. So, uh, more interesting to me, uh, if it wasn't blatantly obvious is some of the AI stuff going on and, and a lot of it's, uh, the thinking around it. So, you know, I've used chat GPT a little bit. Um, not enough that I can get what I really want out of it, uh, even 10% of the time. Like, I'm just, uh, you know, kind of struggling with with how to work it at this point. Uh, but there's some really interesting essays out there. Uh, and, and honestly, you know, so uh, Mark Andreessen has a couple essays out about it. You know, the, the first big one that mm-hmm. he released was why AI won't cause unemployment, which, which I, I don't even think needs to be said. You know, it's, I mean, sure, there, there's people out there, you know, that have always shouted about any, any new techno- technological advancement that automates something that was previously done manually. And of course, we, we, we've never seen it. You know, I think famously, in Time Magazine or something like that, somebody predicted that we would have 20-hour work weeks weeks by, you know, twenty the year 2000 or 2010 or 2020 or something like that. And it, it's, it's clearly not going to happen. So the more interesting one, I think, is Daniel Meisler's article here, How AI is Eating the Software World, which is ironic because the title of it is a play on Mark Andreessen's um, famous essay from 2010, I think, about software eating, eating the world. And, uh, and I think it's the better article. 100% is the better, better article, not even remotely close. Uh, I've known Daniel for a while, and he writes a lot of great stuff. And I, I recently said, and I think I said this to you, Adrian, on Slack, that that could be one of those seminal posts that you go back and read it in 15, 20 years, and you're like, holy cow, this guy was knew exactly where everything was going. And you never know in the moment, right? You didn't know, uh, Andreessen didn't know when he wrote Software is Eating the World that he was right. He thought he was right. He was fairly confident he was right, or he wouldn't have written it, right? But looking back 20 years later after that thing came out, you realize just how right he was. I think Daniel's paper is of that potential magnitude over time. Uh, If you read one post today on here, that's the one that I would say you have to read. I agree. And it's the reason it's a valuable post and and it's a, it's a long read. It's a 15 minute read. The reason I think it's so valuable is Daniel breaks it down. He gives you a framework that you can use to apply to AI things to, to determine, to understand where the value is and and how to get value out of AI in this current form, the generative uh, AI uh, particularly, but, and he gives you a bunch of examples and, always like like i think stuff like this is so hard to understand without examples and and like one of his examples he uses is write a romantic poem from luke to leia in the style of shakespeare and he points out like like understand and and i think he's even being conservative conservative here with the number of non-trivial subjects that chat gpt has to understand to be able to to do this which it does really well you know it's got to understand the english language how poets write, how Shakespeare uh, specifically writes, Star Wars, the fact that Luke and Leia are siblings, and the concept of, of forbidden love. And I, I would go even beyond that. And the fact that it, like, like just saying Luke and Leia, you know, that, that it understands that like, you can be that vague uh, and it understands the context behind that because it, yeah. it understands you know, pop culture. You know what the the most important thing that you said there? It's actually only one word that matters. Out of everything you just said, the only word that matters is understands, right? Yeah. We're not talking about a trivial level of pulling stuff off the internet and regurgitating it. There's some comprehension level that has to occur to understand that 
Luke and Leia were siblings, that there's, you know, the the um, uh, forbidden love aspect. There's that that it was a movie like it's not just pulling one liners off and gluing them together. There's a depth of understanding that has to happen for that level of writing to occur. And I think that's the point of Daniel's essay is that we have created finally a system that understands. And that's why fundamentally, sure, it may not understand everything at this point, but we know how to make the computer understand context. And that's the difference between sentience and non-sentience. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, so. So this weekend, it was actually listening to the All In podcast. Uh, you know, some, something somebody said on there fired me up, and I started writing my next uh, post for the CyberY. And uh, and uh-huh. then I read this. Then I read this, and I'm I'm already I'm I'm going to have to go back and and kind of reconsider. Um, you know, that this might this might change how I'm thinking about it. And what's funny about that, Tyler? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that you're already writing your retort to to my article that's not finished? <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, I saw your part your part written article. I'm like, oh, well, he's wrong. I got to write the counterpoint. Let's go. Game on. <laughs> yeah. And, and you you may have nothing to retort. I I, I may um, I may have to turn an about face on that before I even get it published. I, I should have gotten it published <laughs> on on Saturday. Yes, you should have because then I would have something to retort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, can we bring up uh, the Silicon Valley bank shares issue? Yeah, let's go straight to that. Yep. Do you mind jumping down to 24? Because uh, the reason why I want to bring it up is it is breaking news literally right now. I'm watching a firestorm on some of my slacks around this. Uh, 24 trends. Silicon Valley bank shares slide on stock sale plan to cope with cash burn. Uh, at the time of the writing, it was a 40-something percent dump in their stock price. At the last moment, I believe at the close of market, was 64% uh, dump. And uh, there is literally my slacks are blowing up right now from founders and investors basically saying, get your money the hell out of Silicon Valley Bank as fast as you possibly can, that there's a, a good chance they could go belly up. Um, they were just basically completely beat down by the market turmoil and the dump in share cost of everything. And the, they, they might not have managed their cash deposits well enough to be able to stay liquid. So uh, if we have any founders, I don't know how true this is. I don't want to spin up a, a oh shit moment that doesn't really need to be done. But I do know that um, some rather smart people, including um, uh, Y Combinator, including um, trying to think of some of the other ones here, uh, Founders Fund and others have sent messages to their portfolio companies saying, please get your money out of Silicon Valley Bank immediately. Uh, it sounds like a snowball effect uh, i mean they they've taken some actions to you know to to you know to to try and shore things up but my, my understanding is uh they weren't getting the number of deposits that they would expect to be, because startups aren't raising <clears throat> as often or as much right so it, it's interesting how, how just uh you know something like that which you would think they'd be able to predict you know, like, uh, what, last April? You know, I think we, we saw this trend starting and, and we started talking about it. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, may, may, it, it, says, that quickly, it says, yeah, it says on this, uh, I'm looking at a Wall Street Journal article here at the same time that just came out about an hour ago, um, that they were basically, that they're attempting to raise $2.25 billion right now to stay solvent. Um basically by selling new shares in an attempt to get enough capital in that they can remain solvent. Um, Essentially, I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but generally banks work with a multiplier on cash. You deposit a dollar, they they loan that out multiple times, right? And basically you get this multiplier effect. uh, And that's how the, the banking system and specifically currency system works. And when there's a massive, they call it a bank run, when a bank run occurs and everybody wants their cash at the same time, banks can't get the cash fast enough, right? Because it's all been loaned out too many times over. And, you know, generally you have to have a certain amount of reserve. That's why they have the Federal Reserve, all sorts of things to back up and play that in a safe way. Um, I don't know, but it could be that Silicon Valley Bank is in a world of hurt with regards to having enough liquid capital if people start hitting that bank looking for funding. And that's why they're raising two and a quarter billion right now by selling a mix of common and preferred stock. Uh, They announced late Wednesday that 
it will book a $1.8 billion, billion after-tax loss on sales of investments and seek, seek to raise $2.25 billion ASAP. So I've heard counter stories, you know, all these, in, um, you know, investors and folks telling the portfolio companies to get their money out of the bank. And then there's there's uh, news articles online from Silicon Valley Bank representatives going, don't worry, we're fine. It's not an issue. So yeah. who knows? Who knows? We've what's heard real? that. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Anybody remember 2008? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Heard that before. Oh, boy. But literally breaking news at the close of market today. Silicon Valley Bank CEO tells VC clients to, quote, stay calm. That was two hours ago. Yeah. Yeah, That that's not a uh, – it, it, having to say that out loud, I think make it, make, makes it worse almost. Yeah, he, he also said um, calls started coming, and I uh, they started a panic. Uh, there is ample liquidity to support our clients with one exception. If everyone is telling each other that SVB is in trouble, that could change. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's exactly what's happening. Right, but that's that's how banks are designed. You know, like it's it's yep. uh, it, it's like when, when the snow comes, like like there's more than enough milk and bread for everybody. But if everybody panics and goes and buys two months worth yep. of milk and bread, then that no longer becomes true. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when Silicon Valley Bank CEO tells everybody, hey, stay calm. As long as you don't go tell everybody to, to withdraw their cash, we'll be just fine. You know, immediately everybody's like, I need to withdraw my cash and I need to tell everybody else I know to withdraw because clearly that's a problem. And that starts the bank run. Yeah. Nobody wants to be the last one in line when the money runs out or the next exactly. one in line. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Where else can we go here? So I've, I've got a bunch bunch of stuff here on AI news. And, and the reason for this is there's so much news about what's going on that uh, actually it's story number uh, 15 here. Uh, what OpenAI's API announcement means for makers. Things are moving fast here. And I think for people in security or, or people really in any tech industry uh, need to know is is kind of a higher level view of, okay, what's going on here? Like everybody's talking about ChatGPT. Before that, everybody was talking about Dolly, but maybe you haven't heard of the other things uh, that OpenAI mm-hmm. is doing as well and some of these other API uh, uh, AI um uh, companies and, and stuff that's coming out because they also have Whisper, which is a model that can convert audio into text. So it, it's it, and there's like seven different products that they have here. And it's important to understand everything that's going on there because you know, this is stuff that's going to be you're going to be running into a, at some point, you know, or maybe somebody's going to be asking you about, you know, how, how can we leverage this to, you know, to make make the sock more efficient or something like that in mm-hmm. two months from now or or maybe two years from now. It seems like oh, everything's it, moving really fast. Definitely not two years from now. It's it's absolutely an order of months before we start to see like some of those automation components come into play for cyber. I think the key thing here is like, okay, this stuff all came out what last November or something, and it's people it, people are realizing quickly that there's significant value in using some of this stuff, right? I believe it was this week. It could have been last week that they opened up. Um, um, I think it was opening open API did it o- open their um, their APIs fully functional APIs at this point now where before it was kind of limited to who, who had access to APIs to do different things and it's it's turning into an even massive like much larger adoption moment now that people can dev on top of open API as a fundamental underpinning uh, can create their own LLMs can modify those LM, LL, LLMs can train them in different ways and make API calls to get the answers that they need in their moment of context. And again, it's all about understanding and context. And now they've made it easier to access that understanding and context about anything you want. This is massive. This is a game changer. And LLM is a large language model uh, for, for those not familiar with that. Um, yeah, it's basically just taking taking a, a massive amount of language, or or and, and language is a is a fungible term. It's not just English or Spanish or Chinese. Right. It can be code is a language. I mean, there's lots of different yeah. things. The art is a language. Uh, imagery is a language. Audio is a language. It's taking all of that data and giving you the the ability to pr- apply context and understanding to it 
to make smart decisions of what comes next. That's really what the fundamentals of, of generative AI are. Right. And question to both of you, is OpenAI one of the biggest examples of product-led growth ever? Whew. I don't know the numbers, but I know that they reached they reached like a I don't remember it was ten million or hundred million, million faster than any hundred million yeah hundred million faster than any other in product in history. Yeah, I mean that's definitely pretty damn crazy. And and the the, uh, the premium tier is twenty bucks a month. How much money <laughs> do you think they back started? To what we were 1%, talking about how 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 consumer product or consumer focused products often are more slick and ready to go, you know, people expect more out of them actually than these enterprise products that cost millions of dollars and they accept quirkiness yep. out of them. Yeah, so, so are you saying uh, ChatGPT was pretty polished or? Uh, to, to the degree that it was pretty much impressing the hell out of a lot of people. I mean, it depends who you ask, right? Like if you ask me or you or Tyler, did this write good content? We'd be like, eh, there's some problems here. It's a little glitchy. But for the, the average person, that's probably about as well as they write. Oh, uh, yeah. And yeah, I'll be, better, I'll be better honest better with you, Katie. Much. Yeah, better than the average for sure. And I'll be honest with you, Katie, the, the trick to generative AI is not just accepting the content as it is, but really what it solved for me is the blank page problem. So I took a I took a job writing a blog oh. post for somebody, and they wanted me to write a very dry blog post, something that I had no interest in writing. I didn't know how to do it. I'm like, how do I get started? I struggled, I struggled, I struggled. I put in a five-bullet outline into chat GPT, and I was like, oh, my God, this is perfect. It jump-started me. I had the entire article done in 45 minutes, made a 1000 bucks. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is, if you prompt it right, it gives you exactly what you need to create fantastic content. Yeah. Yeah. And um, like I said, for the average person, they looked at this and went, hallelujah, I never, I never have to write anything again. Right. So, yeah, uh, from that point of view, pretty polished. Um, and it does, you know, to the previous couple of comments, it, it does learn pretty well. So, would this be acceptable in all scenarios? No, of course not. But it was rolled out without a huge number of glaring glitches for the vast majority of its potential user base. Yeah. So AI AI bots are built into uh, Slack now. So Salesforce, uh, who owns Slack, who bought Slack, uh, announced ChatGPT app for Slack now. Uh, it's built into one of the new search engines I use. It's either Neva or you. I think it's you, you.com, Y-O-U.com, uh, that has a, a chatbot built into it. I've been using it in Notion. So all of a sudden, like my personal use of generative AI, I, I didn't really play with the art tools very much at all. But the text-based stuff, you know, as somebody who produces a lot of content, who writes a lot, who does a lot of research... Like it, it went from nothing to daily use uh, almost overnight, which which is <laughs> which is one of the reasons like a third of the news stories today uh, are AI related, and including one of our squirrel stories. Which uh, if if our podcast is too long for you, uh, story number thirty, uh, there is now Chat GPT for YouTube. You can have Chat GPT uh, check out any of our podcast segments and create a summary for you from YouTube. Well, they would huh. certainly be more succinct than we are. No, I can see exactly what chat GPT would, ugh, chat GPT would say about, um, apparently you can't. About, chat no, GPT. I, I can't say anything apparently, <laughs> but I do know what chat GPT would say about our news segment made fun of made fun of uh, marketing terms talked about some weird funding that was uh, too high or too low and then laughed at each other about weird squirrel stories that's pretty much every week oh man uh, that's fair we'll have to this is a this is just a free browser extension I'll, I'll have to try this out I suspect yes, what I would it's love doing, to know what it says 
I suspect it's grabbing the transcription. If it's if it's just a browser extension, it's probably just pulling that text transcription that YouTube a- automatically generates, and then just feeding that to to an AI. Probably. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'll have to try this out. Maybe we'll read one on air if it's funny or interesting or useful. Uh, let's see. What else? Um, I would be remiss, Katie, if we did not talk about women in cyber. I noticed that you, you've you had a um, your newsletter. Uh, you touched on that. Uh, so why, why don't you, would you mind taking that? Yeah, sure. Um, the first time I wrote about women in cyber was in 2017. I was working at the time for Misty, uh, running the content for InfoSec World, and it was really shocking to me that we had so few women who were submitting proposals. And a lot of the women that actually came to be presenters at the conference were either me going out or me asking the women I knew to go out and recruit women so that we could have a better balance. And and it was it was tough. Um, because women were a lot less likely to step up to the plate and there were so many fewer of them. Um, so I wrote about that also based on some previous experiences I'd had working with subject matter experts in the industry and just the, the low percentage of women. And so I revisited that in 2020 and then revisited it again uh, and just put out a new post. I will put a caveat on the post. The first post that went out was the wrong version apologies check back on the site now a first draft was loaded for me into the platform but updates no more typos sorry about that um but the new post uh i talked to two women um ellison ann williams from Invail, and then inca who was just on the podcast uh i don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago uh, but i reached out to her because i thought she was fascinating and so you know, based on some of my research and based on their experiences in the industry, this is just, you know, it was for International Women's Day and Women's History Month, just tapping into their experiences and, and what we can do as an industry, because, you know, it's certainly not just women that are underrepresented in security, but if you look from, you know, 2009 to now, it looks like we've really grown our numbers. But if you look at the statistics from my last post, 2020 to now, we haven't grown the number of women in security to a statistically relevant point. It's by like one or two percentage points. If you gather, if you aggregate all of the data about the percentage of women in security, depending on which source you cite, um, and it hovers between like 24 and 26%, again, depending on the source. Um, but if you look worldwide, women in the workforce represent 40% uh, 47%. Did I say that? 47%. Um, so we're only at, let's say an average of 25%. So you're, you're almost half that, and that just doesn't make sense to me. If you look in the U S we're a little above 50%. Women represent 52 ish percent of the population. So there's still a ton of work to be done. Um, there's also a ton of work to be done in other underrepresented populations in security as well as other industries too. But for international women's day, uh, just wanted to talk to two amazingly impressive women, and so go read their stories. Uh, and, and where can they read those? Oh, ah, uh, sorry, Substack, the Reformed Analyst. There you go. That is Katie's Substack, the Reformed Analyst, and we have a story here. Uh, let's see, it's number twenty-five. Richard Stinnen, who has this amazing database of vendors and products in cybersecurity uh, for uh, Women's Month, uh, for International Women's Month. He pulled uh, some stats here, and uh, or sorry, for International Women's Day uh, on March 8th, which was yesterday. Uh, the stats on 3,309 cybersecurity vendors, only 72 have female CEOs. That's 2.1%, which uh, I always like taking stats like that and and giving them some uh, uh, context. And so Fortune 500 is 4.2% women. So it's it's roughly, uh, not roughly, exactly half of what we see in, in the Fortune 500. 
So, so yeah, yeah there, there are some significant... I did my last post, Adrian, in 2020, I used the database of the company I was working for at the time, um, and that came up with about 5%. Um, and I knew at the time that that data wasn't necessarily accurate. Um, Richard Steenan's database is much bigger and much more thorough, um, but based on the information I was allowed to use, it was 5%. So this is, this is shoring that up and makes it even more kind of stunning to, to see how, how lacking the industry is in terms of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, it, it would it would be great to see some funds that are. I'm sure there's got to be some uh, funds that are that are dedicated to addressing this particular issue. Uh, Tyler, I, I don't know if uh, I hate to put you on the spot, but um, yeah, you know, definitely I, I, I want to say I've seen this. Yeah, yeah, I don't know them off the top of my head. I know Chen Wong runs a fund that I believe does a fairly significant. Her fund is Women Run. I don't believe it requires women uh, um, uh, founders, but there are absolutely, and I could be wrong about that. You should look it up. But there's a number of funds out there that that are specifically geared towards minorities, female, um, people of color, all sorts of uh, of of different um, fund structures, and many of them are investing in cyber. So I think. This is something that we recognize is a problem in the VC industry, and we're trying to get more diverse as much as as much as we possibly can. But it is it is a you know it is a hard thing to solve, and it just doesn't solve overnight. It's not like we can just snap our fingers and fix the problem. No, no, and that's that's the reason to talk about it. And it's not just a woman yep. problem; it's a whole industry problem. Um, I know um, I've done a little bit of digging into this, and there are a couple of um, firms that I know offhand, like the Female Founders Fund, Rethink Impact is one of them. Um, there's another one called um, Valor Ventures um, that also uh, does a lot of digging into, you know, and investing into women and people of color. Uh, and I'm sure there are many others that aren't coming to mind now, but there are absolutely uh, VCs out there that that are looking for this, but it's really all about, you know, raising those voices um, and just highlighting, you know, really good work by these people and and showing that you don't have to be a certain stereotype to be in any industry. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have an interest, there's always room for you, especially in an industry like ours that needs creativity. Here, here. Seconded. All right. And I think, you know, we like to end on a non sequitur, you know, something kind of funny. And uh, I think that's got to be story number 27 here. <laughs> we have five squirrel stories because I've been really distracted this last week. So I've had <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of squirrels running around in my attic. And uh, 28's pretty funny. 28, uh, I'll just briefly mention, like, imagine Clubhouse, but somebody just randomly calls you and talks to you for five minutes on the phone. That's what the Anyone app is. It's a five-minute phone call with a stranger. In so uh, this will never take nobody, off. Yeah, nobody wants <laughs> to talk on the phone. <laughs> Exactly. This will never take off because if you talk to everyone that's of the age that would use it, they don't call each other anyways. They don't even FaceTime each other. They just use Snapchat or, or slide into my DMs or whatever goofy thing the millennials are using this day these days anyways. And yeah, this if it does take off, it will rapidly devolve into a pick up the phone and somebody insults you for five minutes and then they hang up on you. Yeah, uh, Tyler, I just have to point out that if you're using the phrase, whatever they use these days, meaning whatever these kids these days use, <laughs> you are officially old. Katie, get off my lawn. <laughs> just get off my lawn. Uh, what, what was the day today? It was... Uh, um, get over it. Get over yes, it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Tyler, get over it. You're old. 
Yeah, I'm over it. I'm over it. What can I say? <laughs> but but the, well, the you one... woke up my snoring dog too. So <laughs> <laughs> I was enjoying the snoring. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like Tyler said, uh, if you only check out one story from today's show, uh, that should be Daniel Meisler's How AI is Eating the Software World. You can probably just search on that and find it. Um, But if you have time for two and want to laugh, number 27, I've been getting into this kind of like designers having fun uh you know going down this rabbit hole like there's this guy who has a newsletter who sends out like a a a fake mock-up of an app that already exists like he he had this uh food delivery app where it was like gently used food like somebody took a bite of it didn't like it (laughs) he does this (laughs) daily but this is another one in the same vein where, where people were challenged with coming up with the worst volume sliders imaginable and uh, it's just absolutely delightful. I love it. <laughs> it's like, how hard can you make changing the volume? Okay. Sorry, speaking of volume, that was supposed to be on mute. I hit the wrong button. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. I was already and, muted. and I hit the mute button, ended up unmuting and then sneezing. <laughs> I, I don't think I should share. I, I will say my favorite is the very last one. And I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to spoil it for anybody that that's going to click the link and check it out. But my very favorite is the last one. I'm I'm in that rat hole right now, and it is absolutely amazing. It is so good. <laughs> All right, and with that, thanks so much, Tyler and Katie, for joining me today. It's it's been Pleasure it's been lovely. It was, it was a good episode today. And a big thanks to everybody watching or listening to this week's episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. We will be back next week. Bye-bye.